0: So let's get started. Exodus 32. Do you remember? Um, last week I kind of put up a timeline. Gosh, my line's get fairly straight. I'm amazed. I'm impressed by myself. The timeline of where we are, because one of the things when we're looking at these chapters separately from their context, it's kind of nice to figure out where we are and what's, what's going on and what's happening. So to put us in context of where we are, and everybody's really paying attention to me right now, aren't they?
1: <laughs> I have
0: such authority. <laughs> Shall we start over? Are y'all ready? <laughs> Thank you, Margo. <laughs> it's like it's like kindergarten class.
1: <laughs>
0: I love you. I hope you all know how much I love you all. How fun it is to come in here every week. It really is. Oh, it, it, you know that, we call, I call it the rack monster. The rack monster about had me this morning. I did not want to get out of bed. It, was, it had me. It was warm. It was cozy. It was comfortable. I was sleeping good. When that alarm went off, I was like, you've got to be kidding. Surely I set that wrong and it's the middle of the night. <laughs> but it wasn't. I, I needed to get up. Okay, let's just put ourselves in context. Um, of God's redemptive story because that's something we need. To, we really always need to see the Bible from beginning to end is His redemptive story, and it, it's about Him, and it's about His glory. It's and we are just partakers in His story for His glory. So we had creation. God, in the beginning, God created. When He created Adam and Eve, they made that fateful choice of eating the forbidden fruit, and of course, there was the fall. Um, After the fall, life goes on. They begin to populate the earth. The earth gets so corrupt that God regrets he had even created man. All that is left that is righteous is Noah. And so he picks out Noah and saves Noah and his family, destroys the earth by a flood. And then life goes on When Noah. makes a covenant with Noah that I'll never destroy the earth by a flood again. And as time uh, progresses onward and the earth populates and they continue to worship idols, he one day... In Genesis 12 calls out to Abram and says, I I want want you to go where I'm going to tell you to go. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And we know what we learned last week that the irony of that is that Abram didn't even, he was um, 75 years old and he and Sarai were barren. And so they were way past childbearing years and yet God has made this promise to him. And again, he ratifies the promise with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, He is the only one that walks between the pieces of the flesh of those animals, signifying, I will do this, and it's on me to do this. And still, Abram does not have a son of his own. Abram and Sarah take things into their own hands, and they have um, used Hagar and have Ishmael. But in Genesis 17, which is what we studied last week, we realized that is not the promised son that God had intended. Yes, Ishmael was from his own loins, But he meant to be from his own loins and from Sarai. And that who the covenant would be passed down to would be Isaac. And remember last week, that's where God revealed himself as El Shaddai, the almighty God, the one who had spoken creation into existence, ex nihilo, just by his word, could override his laws of nature and produce this child when they were way beyond childbearing years. Abram was 100 when Isaac was born and Sarah was 99. But it is through Isaac that, that um, the covenant will continue and through his descendants after him. And ultimately, through that covenant, clear back here in Genesis 15, when it says, and you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that's going to be through whom? How's that going to happen? Through, through what? Through Jesus Christ. Yeah, through Jesus Christ. How's that going to happen? It's going to be through Jesus Christ that all the nations will be blessed. And through and Jesus is a descendant of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and David on down the line. And then it was in Genesis 17 that we had God institute the sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision, and we had a really good discussion about that last week, and I hope that opened a lot of people's understanding more why circumcision, why, why was this sign given. I thought that was really good to, to revisit that and study. Now, if we go on in the Genesis story to bring us up to where we are now, and, and I'm skipping a lot of details, but, you know, everybody knows the story of Joseph, and Joseph getting sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, and he ends up, through a series of events, uh, Pharaoh's right-hand man during a time of famine, and his brothers eventually come. He reveals himself to his brothers where he says the famous line, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And actually, that we could have chosen that chapter as a great chapter as well. And then they live there and multiply and prosper, but the pharaoh dies and years go by, and it is forgotten why they're even there. And because they are multiplying, the Egyptians are afraid of them and, and think they're going well, they're just by population going to take us over. So we'll enslave them. And we find them at the opening of Exodus, enslaved and oppressed, and they have been for 400 years, and they cry out to God in their misery. And God hears them and remembers them and remembers the covenant that he had made clear back here in Genesis 15. And if you go back to Genesis 15 and you read it again, he says in Genesis 15, for 400 years you're going to be enslaved. He tells them they're going to be. But at the right time, after the 400 years, he says, okay, I hear you. And he raises up Moses as a deliverer. So Moses is raised up. Moses, who had been, um, you know, raised by the Pharaoh's daughter, but then when he killed an Egyptian, had gone off into the wilderness 40 years. And so at 40, God here God calls to him. Uh, no, at 80, because he leaves when he's 40, and then when he's 80, God calls him, and he comes back to be the instrument and the leader to deliver these people out of the bondage that they are in. And he does. So what happens? We have the 10 plagues through him confronting Pharaoh each and every week to let my, each and not every week, each time he went before him, let my people go. There was, there was plague after plague after plague but the final plague, which was Passover. Remember Passover, where they put the blood on the lintel Of the door because what was going to happen when the angel of death went through all the firstborn males were going to be killed but if the blood was on the door they would not be so the israelites had the blood on the door the angel of death passed by and their children were spared but it's at that point pharaoh says fine get out go take anything you want with you but they get out of here and so they are delivered they are delivered by god's mighty hand They do flee, they plunder the Egyptians, they have a lot of their possessions and their gold, and they flee, what happens? You all tell me the story from here that brings us to where we are right here. What ends up happening? Do the Egyptians honor their word? No, what do they do? They come after them, and when they come after them, what happens? Yes, God opens up the Red Sea and makes dry land for the Israelites to pass through. And then when the Egyptians come through, he closes it down on them, and they drown. So that brings us up to the point where we are in Exodus. Here they are in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. God is going to make a covenant with them, which he does. He does make a covenant with them. He gives the Ten Commandments. He gives the law. Those, all, those things all happen earlier in Exodus. I gave you the chapters in, the, in your little opening comments. And they, what do they do when he says, when God's, when Moses reads in the law, how do the people respond? We'll do it. it. Absolutely. Are they enthusiastic about it? Very, very. They mean it. All that the Lord has said, we will do it. And, And what happens when Moses has made this sacrifice? So when they say, when he reads the law, and, he's, and they say, yes, we agree, all that the Lord has commanded, we will obey, we will do it. What does Moses do at that point? Do you all know? He does go up to the mountain, but before that, what does he do? He has blood. What does he do with the blood? Okay, he threw some on the altar, and he threw some on the people didn't he? What is symbolic of that? I'm throwing some on the altar. I'm throwing some on you. OK, it's the covenant being ratified. It's, it's the shedding of blood. What's different this time from the Abrahamic covenant? In the Abrahamic covenant, only God is walking between the pieces of the blood with the blood of the animals. This time, it's on the people as well. It is an agreement, yes. I will, I will do this. I will obey, and I am pledging by the blood being sprinkled on me that I'm going to keep the covenant, and I'm going to obey it. So now it's also on me, not just on God. It's also on me. And we know from the Word of God that God says, you obey this covenant. We know this from Deuteronomy. These are all the blessings I will pour out on you. You do not obey the covenant, and here's all the curses that will be poured out on you. And we see those curses being poured out as they, in their history, continue to disobey. And they are, as, as we get into the prophets and when we look at a couple of them, and they're taken over by other countries because they refuse to repent and turn and in, in worship God. So that's kind of where we are. So here we are at Sinai. And, okay, Scott, where's Moses? Uh, on He's on the mountain, isn't he? Okay, and what happens? We're looking at some of the main events. The golden calf. The golden calf. And why, why did this happen? Huh? They thought, he was, they thought he was gone, didn't they? He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And they're like, what's happened to him? Maybe he's, he's never coming back. Maybe he's been killed. Maybe, you know, maybe God has consumed him. I don't know what they're thinking. But they, they're somewhat panicked. That, that he's not there. Yes, Lynn. How much time has passed from when they crossed the Red Sea to the right before the death start? I'm sorry, that's a stupid question. No, it is I'm not, not a stupid how question. How much time has passed, but it would be so cool you. I don't know. Well, they've had a lot of opportunities to see his blessings, so it must be it named all the things you know, that happened yeah. before this, which says they should have known better. Right. Right. Can you think of some of the things? I mean, that, can you see, when I ask the question, um, what are some of the startling elements of this chapter? What's startling about this? Y'all are talking about it, really. What's? Okay,
1: it also shows that
0: their trust was in Moses, not in God. Okay. Patty says their trust was in Moses, not in God. they panicked. Okay. Okay. What were some things that happened? You didn't, it, unless you took the time to go back and read Exodus, but... But these are all stories we know. Think back. What are some things that they had seen? I don't know how much time. You know, that would have been a rabbit chase to go on to see if you could kind of figure out. I don't think a long time. But even, it's still the initial,
1: they still remember. It's close in their memory that the
0: Red Sea part Yes. Correct? Yes. The water came out of the rocks. Yes. These are the same people that have visually witnessed and experienced God's protective hand through the plagues, the Passover, the walking through the Red Sea, the seeing the deliverance of God closing the Red Sea on the Egyptians and protecting them, experienced what you said, God, they had bitter water, or they had, they, first they had bitter, uh, bitter water, and so God changed it to sweet. At Mara, they had the no water situation, and Moses hit the rock, and out of the rock, has the, you know, again, totally against the laws of nature, flows fresh water for them to drink. They're hungry. God sends manna. They get tired of manna. God sends quail. Uh, all they have to do is go out in the morning and get it, and in the evening and get the quail. They've been told. They've, they've witnessed all of this. What else have they witnessed? The cloud, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Yes, you said some, you were going to say oh. something, Lucia. how quickly they could turn away when they just witnessed all this. Yes. Yeah, Lucia, you wanted to say
1: something. grow impatient, and does quickly. And so we turn to
0: something to see if we can Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're really not that different from them. I mean, it's easy you know, to kind of quarterback from the stands or backseat drive but if we put ourselves in their shoes, we're really not much different. It is startling that they could see those things and experience them and then so quickly do this. I think it's important to remember that also, just like in our culture today, sometimes it's the squeaky wheel that's heard, and yes. sometimes think that's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like when you get into the prophets and it looks like the entire nation is, is, um, worshiping idols and being disobedient to God. And yet there's always a remnant, uh, who have stayed faithful. There always is. have a lot of sympathy for them actually I really do I'm not I'm not nearly as I've grown uh, as I've grown in my walk with the Lord and I see my own failings and the things that I do which we'll talk about in a minute not mine but just us in general <laughs> I'm not going to talk about mine but, but what when we go to one of these application questions um I I, I, I I'm not going to say I wouldn't do what they did at all let, let's look at it. What did they do? They what did they? Imp- Moses uh, Moses is missing, and so they're a little impatient. They're kind of panicking, and what what do they? They go to Aaron, and what do they ask Aaron to do? God. They, God. they make make us make us gods that will do what? Go before them. So so what did? It's important to ask. What did they think this graven image was going to do for them? Why did they want it? Hey, protect him. Do you catch that phrase? This is where sometimes the, word, the words will give you the clues. We want gods that will go before us. What's the image? If this god's going, these gods are going before us, they're going to, they're gonna, as you said, they're going to protect us. What else are they going to do? They're going to provide for me. What else? Where are they going? They're going to the promised land. Who's in the promised land? Canaanites, and what are they going to have to do there? kill them. So they're wanting someone that's going to provide for them, going to protect them, and also ensure them victory over their enemies, right? Because they exactly, they've been able to see Moses, and Moses has kind of been associated. I mean, he's so connected with God; he's associated with God, and he is someone tangible they can see. Moses is the one who's gone before them, and and he is representative of the fact that they've been provided for, they've been guided, protected, and and they've already had a battle um, against. Some enemies, and because Mo, they had God had Moses hold his arms up. You remember that story? If he pulled his arms down, they began to lose the battle. If he kept them up, then they were victorious. And and Aaron and whoever else had to help him hold his arms up because he got so tired. Do you remember that story? Yeah, it's back there. Go back in Exodus. It's in there. And and so they would have victory over their enemies. So you can see the I have great empathy for them. I, we don't even. He's up there on that mountain. We, Maybe he died while he's up there. And we don't even know. We don't have anybody to lead us. So then the next question becomes, then, then why a golden calf? It's interesting that Aaron does this, doesn't he? Isn't it? Because what does he do? He says, bring all your gold. Where had they gotten the gold? When they plundered the Egyptians. And I'll, I'll make you this god. And he fashions, he carves and fashions this, this golden calf. Or some say it was actually a golden bull. And says, Behold, here, here's your, here are your gods that led you out of Egypt. And we're going to call a feast day. Did you notice that? A feast day to the Lord, to the who? Who's that? Well, not just the cat, Lord, at all caps, L-O-R-D. It's Yahweh. Yahweh. So here's your golden calf. Oh, and we are going to have a feast day to Yahweh as, as well. So on the first question is, Why a golden calf? That sounds... Foreign to us, we don't have golden calves. We don't even have little statues we worship. Our idols are more insidious. But why this golden calf? Does anybody know why? Yeah, the Egyptians worshipped a, a golden calf. I think it, it was Apis or something like that. Yes. Who else worshipped a golden bull or calf? Does anybody know? The Canaanites, Baal, mm-hmm. yeah, so think about, think about the Israelites, and we kind of talked about this a little bit um, last week, was idol worship a foreign thing for them? Not at all, not at all. There are plenty of references, and we looked at a couple last week, that remember Abraham, Abram himself was a, had been an idol worshiper. They say that like your fathers when they came out with their foreign gods. This was so endemic in, in the culture that in the Egyptian culture, just in culture in general, in the Canaanite culture, this was not an unusual thing. So they had had idols. It doesn't, it doesn't mean they have rejected God. They're just adding to. Does that make sense? Because one of those questions in your homework is, is, are the people looking for a substitute for God or are they trying to worship God in an inappropriate way? How did you answer that? What do you think? I can't hear you. It's louder. I just thought they were replacing Moses. Okay, you thought they were replacing Moses. Were they rejecting God or just replacing Moses? Okay, okay. Lana says, I think they were just replacing Moses. Somebody else? What are they doing here? Yeah. Okay. So you said I, I don't think they're replacing Yahweh, we're just adding something else. Yeah, I think there was both. Both going on. Okay, you're shaking your head. They never left They yeah. never left it. Yeah. No. They never left it, Lucia. What were you going to say? The same. same thing. They that the, yeah, Marilyn
1: Mm-hmm. I think there were, some people that
0: were just... mm-hmm. I think there was, but I think the important point is what Lucia and and some of you all in June and you've said the idolatry had never left them. What this reveals is what was true of their nature and their nature was to worship idols. they were idol worshippers they had worship idols they continue to worship <laughs> idols I I really don't think they suddenly said, well, we're going to be an atheist and we're going to not believe in Yahweh. I think they still embrace Yahweh. They're just going to add the other idols in. It's, it's what's called a form of syncretism. I'm just going to put them all together, cover my bases so that I'm really sure I have guidance and protection and victory. I, I'm going to put all, of, all of these in there together. I, I think that what we lose sight of, but we really shouldn't lose sight of, It's just how strong idolatry was in the culture, and how prevalent it was, and how difficult it would have been to have given that up. Does that make sense? Yes, Phoebe? whatever Moses told them, and it's like secondhand knowledge, except that they did see all the miracles. Yeah, Patty's, you're shaking your head now. Well, I mean, they they did see a lot of stuff, so I would think based on that they would have some trust in God. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, Kim. It doesn't mean they didn't know God. I'm not. I, I, they, but they're scared. So let me pull in something that I do think will also bring me comfort. Exactly. Yes, Lynn.
1: Mm-hmm. For 100 years, and think how much our country has
0: changed in the last 10 years. Yes. And how much we accept and don't find it mm-hmm. shocking in five or five years. Think exactly. Years. Exactly. Yes. Where are you? Yes. When I ask go ahead. Did you say something? Because, you know, that was just, I mean, we don't really need to discuss it a lot, but that was one of the questions, how many of the commandments did they break that they had just agreed to? You know, they broke several of the, they broke three of the first commandments that they had just agreed to that you said, just like you said, what what is your name? I haven't met you. Rosemary. Rosemary. God had clearly set out the ground rules. Here are the ground rules of the covenant, and that is you worship only me. And there is no other God besides me. You don't make an idol. You don't carve a a graven image and hold it up and worship it and sacrifice to it. And yet here they are that close to the ratifying the covenant already breaking, completely breaking it. Yes, Tony. you know when i ask you the question every week what does this text reveal about god what does this text reveal about the nature of man what does this text reveal about the nature of man what is it about their nature here we've been talking about it what is it they what yeah what yeah that their nature is to be idolaters their nature is god designed us to worship something and we will find something to worship I'm jumping ahead here and follow me because it's really not our lesson, but those of you all that did covenant a few years ago, you'll follow me here on this one. What What is this incident revealing? And then as you go forward in the Old Testament accounts, what's it revealing? The law cannot change their nature. The law does not give them a new heart. What the law reveals is that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That's somewhat, when we think of God's redemptive story, that's, story and the big picture beginning from end and not just isolate this right here in this one chapter, then what I'm seeing it what, what I'm seeing here is a revelation of even though you've agreed to this and we sprinkled the blood and you real I think they in all innocence believed they could do it. I don't think they said those words and thought, yeah, but I'm gonna go make this golden calf. They they believed it and they wanted to you know, how many times do we want to be obedient to the Lord? We turn around that day and sin but they didn't have a heart to be obedient. And that's gonna be revealed all the way through until Jesus comes and, and he, we are given a new heart and we're given a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone and we're giving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yes, June. No, the law will not. By the Spirit, yes, exactly. Do y'all see that? Okay, go to that app. Now I'm going to really shoot you down. Go to that application. Question number 12, where we see ourselves. Why is adultery such an easy thing to slip into? Why are we so eager to worship things other than God? What makes our idols of choice so appealing? How are we like these people? Are we like them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Following, God requires faith. following what Tony said is following God requires faith, especially. I'm going to add to that, especially when it seems like He is not present or He is not answering, right? Are we, how, are, we, are we any different than them? I mean it, we say it's startling that how could they have seen these things and witnessed them and experienced them? But are we really any different? I don't think we could really consider what idol worship is. What is idol worship? What who what are our idols? Anything anything that's, 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 that's,
1: that's,
0: that's the it can be Yes. <laughs> family, work, money. <laughs> Cars, houses, football teams, teams. (laughs) (laughs) my kids, grandkids, yeah, friends, mom, dad. Anything that gives you pleasure or recognition? I'd add some more. I would. That I require a lot of you, either. Yeah. Yeah. Da, well. OK, we can see it. We can touch it. I'm thinking of some other things. Gives me pleasure. Gives me recognition. It's something a little more visible. What else? Okay, okay, did you all hear? Okay, this is excellent. Did you hear Brenda? Say it loud, Brenda. Well,
1: I said, Lynn's actually kind of right because it's something that gives you relief from
0: pain. Whatever gives you relief from pain. Or discomfort or mm-hmm. things
1: like that. Mm-hmm. And also things that give us security, what we feel like makes us
0: feel secure. Mm-hmm. I love that, I love that. So it's everything all of y'all are saying, but that was the missing piece. Whatever gives me relief from pain or provide security or comfort or guidance? So so do you see where where some of the gamut is open, we don't have golden calves. We don't have little little funny figurines and a and a shrine in our home. But we have our idols they're there every day. And I think every person in here, if I went around the room and said, what's your idol? I, I don't have any doubt that everybody in here knows what your idol is. What is it that you run to apart from the Lord, when you're in pain, when you're hurting, when you want some sense of identity or uh, relief, whatever it is you're looking for that only Christ can provide for you. And y'all, I'm preaching to the choir right here, because I know what my idol is, and I know where I run, and it is a continual problem for me. And I can blame it all I want, and it's, it's true, it is true. That it is my context is that it's from some very damaging things in my childhood, but that still doesn't make it right. Does that make sense? And and that's where I need the body. You know, when we ask that last question about then, you know, what can you do? Um, we do the same thing. Um, when, when do you have a hard time remembering what God has done for you? How do you forget about God and his care? And what helps you remember who God is, what he has done, and what he is doing? That's why we need the body. That's why I need my accountability partners. That's why I need friends who I can call and they can say, you are forgetting who your identity is today, Nancy. You are absolutely forgetting it. Remember who you are. Because we're, that's where I say, we're, we're really not any different than them. We all have the same sinful nature. We all have the same sinful nature. Yes, Norma. I think that, the, you know, it's astounding when you say you know, grandchildren and your children. I mean, that's just like,
1: oh, no. But my mind then went to Abraham and Isaac. Why did God say, offer your son? Yeah.
0: nothing. Until it gets out of balance. Mm -hmm.
1: It can be anything. Sure. Yeah.
0: They will fail you. People will always fail you because they're not God. Yes. Okay, let's go ahead and then we're going to move forward in the story. Or there'll be consequences. There's always forgiveness when when there's repentance, but it doesn't mean there aren't some consequences for the actions that we take. Okay, let's move on in the story a little bit. So Moses is up on the mountain. What's interesting about all this happening is just as this is happening, Moses is on the mountain getting the instructions for the tabernacle and the priesthood. And then right after this happens, they do build the tabernacle. And in Exodus 40, God... God, um, his glory comes and dwells it. And then so in the middle of all this, we have this incident, which makes it such a tragic story. But, but God sees what's going on and tells Moses, you need to get down there because let me tell you, what's he say the problem is? Your people are what? They have corrupted themselves. And what's, how is God's state of mind communicated here in the text? He's very angry. He's he yeah, cuz he has a solution to it. What is what's his solution? We'll just wipe them out and I'll just start over and make a great nation of you, Moses. Because look what, did you notice that switch? Your people? Your people? My people? I mean, it's always been my people and suddenly because of what they're doing it's your people. This is where it's important when you're doing those observations, pay attention to those little those little words and how the switch comes because you get an idea of what's happening in, in God's mind. Um, and he, he's just so angry. I just, I want to consume him. How, how does Moses respond? What do we see Moses do? He intercedes and he uses several points to say, whoa, wait a minute, God, you don't want to do this. And what are his points? God now think about this you are Yahweh God almighty Elohim and you're gonna and you brought them out do you remember you brought them out by your mighty hand and in front of the Egyptians you did all these incredible mighty things and then you're just gonna wipe them out here what do you think the Egyptians are gonna say how's that gonna make you look if you if you do that what else does he remind, what else does he put before him and say but wait a minute He reminds them of the covenant that he had made, the covenant to Abram, Ham, Isaac, and Jacob, although it says here Israel. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. Remember the covenant that you made, that binding covenant that you as God would never break, and you promised to do this through these people. So remember these things, and as a result, because Moses puts this before him, what does God do? He relents. He relents, and he does not bring the disaster upon him. So the question becomes, does Moses change God's mind? There's a, I, asked, I asked Ryan to stay in the class today <laughs> to help address this. I can do it, but he'll do it better than me. Does anybody struggle with that? You do? Okay. Anybody struggle with that? Does, you certainly wonder about it? Because what it, I gave you some other scriptures and sorry about that little mistake. Thank you, Alex, for emailing me and saying, uh, you got this person here twice. What do we know about God? Does what do the scriptures say? He doesn't what? I don't I don't change. You know what I say I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. except Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it yeah, go ahead, Debbie. It's a good point. Mm-hmm. It's the same argument you know, that could be made if, if one pray, you know, and I God already knows that your, your loved one's going to die one pray. You know? Right. So it's kind of that, that God knows his omniscience. He knows everything. He knows what Moses is going to say, what, you know, yeah. and what he's going to do. He don't change his mind, but he does listen. He does listen. Okay. Okay. Ryan, you want to jump in? That's what it's like, the anthropomorphisms and what's that other word? The one where you were giving well, human I, feelings. I
1: well, I would describe it as like the good kind of condescension. Yes. Like I talk down to my kid all the time because he's 4 and uh-huh. I'm not belittling him. I'm not saying he's less than a person. I'm just saying I can't talk to you like I talked to Nancy Green. So you have all of these. Mm-hmm. And so god's having a moment with moses and i would i would venture to bet that moses understood what god was saying better than we did I mean, Mm-hmm. Mhm. And let God say what He says, and then let everything else about Him that's always true mm-hmm. remain true. Mhm. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Do y'all get that? Mhm. Okay. Lots of hands going up. Yes. Would you say it's similar though, to what Jim was talking about with Jonah? Yes. On, yeah. I mean, God relented there for their repentance, and so He's relenting here not for their repentance but because of His mercy. Mhm. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Very similar to Jonah. Yes. Who was next? Well, just Oh, i to Phyllis? Yeah, yeah. He's not going to pull it out, he, uh, no. His promises will remain true. And there, um, I read somewhere, and I may, this may come out wrong. This is where you might want to jump in, Ryan, that there's like conditional and, and unconditional statements that he makes. And the conditional would be like Jonah. This is what I'm going to do. And, and what all the prophets, if you don't repent, this is what I'm going to do. And I will do it because it is conditioned upon the promises that I made with you that if you continue in this path, then I have to be true to myself and my unchanging nature and bring judgment But the conditional part is, if you repent, I'll withhold my judgment. So I've I've allowed room for you to repent. There's no changing of his mind that I will relent of what I'm saying I'm going to do if you repent. Yes, Norma. Yeah, I see it. I see it. My my Bible says I may, I may, I may destroy them. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I might take you out. killed or people
1: killed. Was could this have been an idea that was planted in God planted this idea in and you know, said, I you know, I wanted to destroy them and then Moses was no and but when Moses got there and was so angry and realized there were so many people against God. And God did he plant
0: this idea? I I mean I I, I well but I think that's I think that's kind of focusing on the minors to miss the, the big picture. And, and that's me. Yeah, no. Yes, when he shows up, he's, he's really angry. And he takes the tablets and he breaks them, which is really symbolic of you broke the covenant. Do y'all see that? You broke the covenant. And here it is really broken before you when he throws them down. And, and he does say, who is on the Lord's side? And, and the Levites come and stand on his side. And, and, and Moses is a Levite as well. And then he says, you're going to go brother against brother with a sword, and 3,000 are killed. Now, that sounds like a lot of people until you consider there's probably about 2 million of them, and then that's really not a lot of people. But there, there's some thinking that the 3,000 killed, because when they had them drink the ashes and stuff, there's a um, if you go back into Numbers, there's a time where a woman accused of um, adultery is made to drink ashes of heifer, and it's gonna, if it's bitter, then it reveals she's really guilty. And that somehow the 3,000 were the ringleaders in this, and those are the ones that are killed. Now, those are all minor details. It's just there is judgment, and there is a calling to who is on God's side when, when, this, when this happens. But don't miss the main point of all of this. When, when it says, when Moses keeps saying, did you see the repetition of that? Might, these people have committed a great sin, a great sin. Why is this a great sin? Did you, did you notice the use of that word? Why is this a great sin? This is where we need to focus. They broke, a they broke a commandment, but why else is this a great sin? Think of this in terms of God's redemptive story. This is where we need to learn to think broader and focus on what's really important here. What are they about to do? In, in, in their history, they've come out of Egypt. They've been delivered by a mighty hand. They've just been given the law, which is going to set up the standard for how they are to live, to be a holy people in this new land that they're going to go in and under Joshua conquer. Why is this such a grave crisis? Why is this such a grave... Um, a great sin even given the calf credit yes For and made an altar to it and and we can debate what all was going on there the amount of reverie and was there sexual orgy going on or not but they, what they were doing was very evil they are a covenant community you all think of this: they are a covenant community and it is through this they are now a nation where once they had not been and it is through this nation and this covenant community that a new redemptive thing is about to happen, and that is that they're there to go into the land and conquer it. And why are they going? They're going into the land because God promised it. But why are they going to be there? What is Israel to be? Israel is a kingdom of priests, is a light to the nations. They are to draw all men to themselves in relationship with God. They are to show the world this is what being in relationship with the one true God Yahweh looks like. Don't you want that? Don't, don't you want that? So at this particular point in redemptive history, why is this such a great sin? Because you, you have, you're trying to bring in idols along with it, and there's no room for idols. There's only room for me, the one true God. That's it. Are you all understanding what I'm saying? Why this is such a great sin? This is a pivotal point. In God's redemptive history, the thing I kept thinking about when this happened is Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, right at the beginning of the church, why were they struck dead? Why such a harsh judgment on them? Because it was a really bad thing at that point in what God was doing for for the building of his church, and he couldn't have that pollution in the midst of it, or it was going to pollute the whole thing. That's what makes this such a grave sin right here now in my one minute left what did you learn about God in this and I know we didn't get through all the details so if you have questions be you know feel free to pull me aside or email me what do you learn about God in this we know what we know about us and how fickle we are and how easily we are swayed by our idols because we think and we believe that they're going to bring us comfort and guide us and relief from our pain but what do we learn about God in this He's powerful, he's merciful, he's jealous. he's jealous in a good way, isn't he? I think that's what Jim is going to deal with is the jealousy of God. it's what he told me. He gets angry. Why is he angry, though? Because what? Well, holy, but what? Combine anger and jealousy. Because he wants us. Because it's like, it's like a mother bear that's been ripped of her cubs. You took my cubs and, I, and I'm, any you mothers in here, or maybe there's, dads do it too. Do something to my cub and I will go crazy. You know what I mean? I will lose all sanity in protecting my cub. Or my grand cubs. Because <laughs> I got those now. Yeah. Somebody said merciful. What do you see about God in this situation? When he said I'll just uh, in his anger I'll just my wrath I'll just I'll just consume them and start over. Could he have done that? He had the capability of doing it, didn't he? But he didn't. What does that show you about him? What does it show you about him that he he had the capability, it was certainly within his power to do that even though he couldn't go against who he was and that he made this promise to them clear back in the Abrahamic covenant what does it show you about him and i may have to tell you may I'll, is it a soft heart or is it i'm thinking of another word he is faithful write that down what this story what this account really reveals is the faithfulness of god that regardless of what man does. I am going to fulfill my redemptive plan and it will not change. And you know what? It is not dependent on you. It is not dependent on them or anything redeeming in them. It is only upon me and my mercy and my graciousness that I will that I have made this promise. I am bringing a Messiah further down the road and I will stay Faithful to that that's what this shows is the faithfulness of God and then it's that's why we go back to it's God's redemptive story if it were dependent upon us it never would have happened y'all see that so we can we can take it to the bank when we are feeling that urge and again I'm speaking to the choir because I'll feel it later today I can just tell you that urge to go to my idol that really the one that is faithful is him, not, not my idol, not, the, not those things that I think are going to relieve my anxiety and my pain. He is the one. He is the one that will remain faithful, because I can see it played out in his word. Questions, comments? OK. Yes, yes, sir. He did respond to his character. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He does listen to us. There is a reason we pray. That's a whole other lesson. There is a reason we pray because he does listen. And, we, and, we, and because... He answers prayer the way he wants. According to his character. Which is better than what we would have ever asked for. Right, Tammy? Good point. Okay, Okay. let's take a short break.
2: Good morning, and uh, obviously since the fact that you're watching this, I am not with you. I am uh, actually up in Kansas City this morning um, with the the pastors as well as the elders from Eagle Heights Baptist Church. Uh, Brent, um, who's the lead minister there, uh, very graciously invited me to come up and... Uh, attend a conference on uh, on the church and what it means to be a faithful church on mission up at Midwestern uh, Baptist Theological, and uh, uh, I graciously accepted his gracious offer, and so we're going to be spending some time uh, today. And I don't, I'm not their teacher today. I'm just someone that's uh, here to go along with um, with them and to, to study and to learn about what it means to be part of the uh, the church leadership. And so, uh, do we definitely covet your prayers? Uh, we did a podcast uh, a while back, a couple of podcasts actually. One of them that I thoroughly enjoyed was sitting down with a number of our ministers and having a conversation about what uh, what we believe about other churches in town. And uh, it received a lot of hits. A lot of people were interested in, I think, what we were going to say. And we didn't try to provide some kind of uh, um, crazy provocative title that would somehow get a lot of people to come along uh, and take a look at it and then really not say anything. That's not what we wanted to do. But we also don't have any desire to uh, uh, to uh, to speak overly critical of anyone. Um, yeah, but, the, but the real truth is, and Brent actually in the Eagle Heights team, uh, they share this passion that we have um, to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength to um, uh, accomplish the mission that Jesus Christ has given us. And so when we have an opportunity to consider um, all the different church options that people have here in Stillwater, it's good for us to, to speak honestly and truthfully in accordance with what God's Word says. Um, our culture loves to, as we're going to learn in our text today, um, they love to be seduced into worshiping other things and God does not take that kindly, and so when as church leaders we see that happening, um, we need to be able to speak out against it no matter where it's found. And uh, when we uh, begin to perceive that there be uh, there might be some churches that are definitely not preaching the full counsel of truth, um, it's it's i think important for us to at least speak up and say something paul sure didn't mind speaking the truth about some concerns that he had about different individuals and uh and and leaders within uh within the church when the apostle paul says in acts chapter 20 that among your own or 24 um, from among your own selves Acts 20 sorry Uh, from among your own selves men will come up and uh like like wolves in sheep clothing he is speaking about uh, the deception that can exist in the church. And so um, Eagle Heights is one of those churches that we love, that we uh, consider there to be a close bond, uh, a love for God, um, a love for His mission, and a love for His purpose. And so um, that's definitely one of those churches. The other thing that we did was we did a podcast with uh, with with Brent specifically when we talked about the shack, and it was interesting to hear his insights. So um, I love the fact that we don't have to do this alone. Um, again, what we're, what we're describing is a like-mindedness amongst churches, and Eagle Heights isn't the only one, um, that just understands that it is a dangerous thing to love anything more than God. And so I don't know if you can tell, but I've already started our, with our text uh, using my context up here as, uh, as the springboard. What, what, what Brent and his leadership and what uh, we experience here at Sunnybrook is this passion and this devotion for not ourselves, not trying to make our church grow as we sang yesterday, um, or two days ago actually, um, yesterday as I record this, but two days ago as you watch this, uh, that there is a not-to-us mentality uh, that should exist, that all glory go to God, um, all honor go to Him, all praise go to Him, and uh, we cannot allow anything, even good things, to come up and to uh, to challenge the the primacy, the the centrality, and the importance of God being at the very center. My dad has lots of things to say to me about life. And one of the things that he would tell me as a a young boy and as a man growing up and uh, beginning to experience uh, relationships with young women, uh, my dad would actually say to me, Son, be very careful. Uh, Do not marry a jealous woman. And I don't know how much he's speaking from experience. I remember him telling me that a number of times. Do not marry a jealous woman. And uh, God graciously allowed me to marry one of the least jealous people I've ever met, my wife. Uh, My wife uh, has an incredibly um, deep sense of who she is in God. Not that she doesn't have her own insecurities in a way. Um, But I'm absolutely amazed at uh, her ability to stand strong In who she is, and I always pray and hope that she is kind of have that has that in Christ, that it's not based upon her own achievements or her own self ability, but that she has um, a self awareness and a a self even appreciation um, as being the woman that God has made her. And so we've never had this issue. We've never had anything come up where where jealousy is uh, at 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 the core of it. At least not on her end. I myself, on the other hand. even though my dad warned me not to marry a jealous person, maybe he should have been talking to Andrea. It really hasn't been like a, a cornerstone or a, a major uh, mark upon our marriage. But there have been a number of times where, um, where jealousy was a big part of, uh, of how I looked at our relationship. Now, I didn't do it at first because at first I, I knew how much Andrea absolutely, and by the way, she hates it when I do this, but I, I need to use illustrations from, from real life. Uh, Andrea and I, when we, we first started our relationship, she was the one that made it very, very clear how much she wanted to be with me, how much she loved me, how much I stood as a very important and I would even make, maybe say a central part of her life. Um, we spent a lot of time together. And when that was going on, when I could just sense and tell that she loved me and that she cared for me and she loved no one else like me, um, then it was, a, it was a good feeling. And then, you know, long story short, as our relationship continues to uh, to progress and to move forward, and as I begin to not uh, fulfill some of the, maybe the responsibilities, even though it was a boyfriend and really there's no reason to be dating unless there's a greater intent. But that's beside the point. I just remember at the sense of, uh, or feeling feeling the sense that somehow, like my primary place in her life was beginning to shift. And it wasn't like she was taking that primary place that I wanted and she was giving it to God or she was giving it to her homework or she was giving it to her parents or to her sisters. No, she was giving it to her friends, she was giving it to herself and it began to make me very unsettled. And when jealousy begins to develop inside of, of, of us, then there can become some rather destructive habits or tendencies. Um, I didn't respond in that jealousy by pointing out to her maybe the importance of her to kind of put me back on the throne in her life. Instead, I began to, um, to try to manipulate her so that somehow I could win that primary place again. I began to express my love for her and my appreciation for her. Um, I, I began to challenge some of her attitudes and some of her behaviors. And like a young woman and a young man can do, um, we all of a sudden found ourselves um, fighting and arguing. Uh, it wasn't always about um, the jealousy that I was feeling inside of me. Um, it was her wanting to express her own independence and maybe some uh, some freedom that she wanted that uh, she hadn't experienced in the last, a year and a half while we were dating. And by the way, she had every right to do that. There was no ring on our finger. But I could just remember feeling like somehow I had lost control. And the only way to get that back um, as a finite, limited and broken human being is through manipulation, is through somehow uh, playing the pity card. You don't love me like you used to. You don't care for me. And interestingly enough, that insecurity did not win her back to me, but if anything made her wonder, why am I with this guy? That's how human jealousy uh, uh, happens. That's That's how it's expressed. Now it's very interesting that when we look at the different attributes of God, Um, There are many that we are to emulate. God is forgiving and we should be forgiving. God is loving and we should be loving. God um, is merciful and we should be merciful. All of these are attributes that God has that God exhibits. What about jealousy? Should Should we be jealous like God? As you probably know, God is definitely a jealous God. In Exodus chapter 34, you actually see that phrase come up. Um, He actually points out in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. You shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. There's an interesting phrase. Whose name in jealous is a jealous God. And so when I begin to look at that jealousy, it's very easy for us. We do this with anger, do we not? that God is a God that has this righteous indignation. And so then you and I begin to hold on to that righteous indignation and we, we then express it as something that maybe we should have, that we need to be able to express our anger and to be angry, even though the Bible actually tells us to rid ourselves of all anger and malice, um, to forgive one another as Jesus Christ, has, as God has forgiven us in Christ. Um, the book of James actually tells us that man's anger does not bring about God's righteousness, but we look at these attributes of God, particularly his anger, and we think, I should be able to exhibit that same anger. Why can't I do that with jealousy? Why can't I, um, let, let, let's move the ball forward. Let's say I now, as a, as a husband with a ring on my finger, now look at my wife and say, I cannot believe that she is um, not giving me the attention that I deserve. She's not putting me in my, in a, kind of in a primary place in her life. And I'm going to begin to ex- uh, kind of exhibit, I'm going to begin to hold on to a lot of these attitudes and these behaviors that come from this, because I have every right to be jealous. Well, the problem is, is that much like with every single attribute, there is a, um, there is a brokenness within us. And especially, let's just call them more of the, um, the, 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 the difficult, uh, maybe they're all difficult. I don't know if love is that easy um, to exhibit always in a pure form. I know a lot of bad things that have been done in the name of love, claiming that they're loving, and they don't seem to be. It's amazing how much of our lives actually revolves around the insecurity that we feel. God is a jealous God. His name is Jealous. And that's what we actually see in Exodus 32. Um, If you have your Bibles, and Nancy's already walked through with this to you, um, you begin to see in verse 1, And when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together with Aaron, and they said to him, Up! <laughs> Come on, let's let's do this. Let's get on our feet. Make us gods who will go up before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Think about that. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. There is already something that is fundamentally broken in um the Israelites' understanding of what happened. If we, if we go all the way back to Exodus 3, which I think is just a very important text for you to know, which is the burning bush encounter, God makes it very clear that He is the one. Um, if you go back to Exodus 3, it, it basically says, um, um, I, I'm going to set my people free, for I indeed have seen the misery of my people, and I am coming down to rescue them, so now go. So we, we we talk about this a lot. I mean, I seem like I bring this up a lot, that the the paradigm of the call on Moses' life to go and to lead the people up out of Egypt. I talked about this two days ago in, in my sermon on, on Sunday, that I don't know exactly um, what could have possibly happened if Moses had said no, but I do know the people were coming out. So... Moses isn't the one that brought them out. The text actually says, for I myself have seen their misery and I am going to bring them out. And Moses, I'm going to use you as the vehicle, but I am the one who's going to do it. But notice what happens when people begin to look at things from a mere human perspective, forgetting, forsaking, forfeiting, um, the the kind of the greater truth behind it is that it is not Moses that led them out. It is not Moses that parted the Red Sea. It is not Moses that defeated the the Egyptians. It's not Moses that killed all the firstborn. It's not Moses that was able to do these things. So they, they have this panic within them and all they know how to do is act like everybody else around them. Everyone else has gods. I want one too. And so they look and they say, As for Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And then Aaron knows exactly what to do because this this response that we have to do what we possibly can to find something to fit that hole in the middle of us, that that fear in the middle of us, that there is something greater than us that we must submit to, that we must serve, that we must um, try to control and manipulate for our benefit— um, gets filled rather quickly, and that vacuum gets filled by Aaron saying, listen, yeah, here's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to, um, to make, you, uh, uh, make you gods. Verse 4, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, which is clearly not allowed, according to Exodus chapter 20. We'll get there in a second. Um, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then when Aaron saw this, He built an altar before it, and Aaron proclaimed and said, Tomorrow there shall be a feast to... And look at the text. Look at that L-O-R-D. All in caps. That's Yahweh's name. We are going to have a festival, a feast, to the Lord, to Yahweh God. And we're going to use this golden calf. And we are now going to begin to worship like everybody else worships around us, like all the other nations. Most likely what they had seen the Egyptians do. And so we... Um, as, as humans want to express our love and appreciation for the gods because that's what keeps this whole life cycle going. That we don't understand exactly how this works and so we are going to trust that there is something greater than us. Uh, they didn't believe that the, that the idol itself was in fact anything. I mean, the prophets love to make fun of this idea. Um, Isaiah the prophet makes fun of the idea that how... How do you know what part of a, of a, of a timber, of a, of a beam to, to carve up and to make the idol and then the, the kind that you will actually use from that same beam to make the fire to offer up some kind of a sacrifice? Like how do you know what, what part is the God and what part is that? When there is a, a misunderstanding of who actually God is, then that then leads us into false ideas about worship. But really, our idea this morning is not just kind of this generic idea of idolatry, although that could have been a direction that we take it in. But instead, I want to look at idolatry. I mean, if the problem that we see with the Israelites is that they fail to recognize what is happening from God's perspective, then let's make sure that we look at this text again from God's perspective, and God is describing a brokenness that exists within the people where they fail to understand the primary place that he alone should stand in. And so they decide, let's do this. Now, it's interesting that there is a tremendous amount of anger that comes from this. As you look and see in verse 7, and then the Lord, Yahweh, the one whose festival that they um, are celebrating, said to Moses, go down. I mean, notice the up. (laughs) Aaron, up! Aaron, up! Do something for us, God says to Moses. Go down, for your people who brought you up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Um, worship and the, the things that we worship are not just generic, um, uh, somehow disconnected ideas. How we worship can either purify us, can either have like a redeeming aspect of who we are, or it can corrupt us. It can make us tremendously broken and evil. So he says here, uh, I want you to go down because I want you to see how the people have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly, out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Um, meaning that they don't want to turn. They're stiff-necked. They don't want to admit um, of their their brokenness. They don't want to to be a people that want to turn or return to the Lord. It's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn against them, that I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord and said, Oh Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Now that's an interesting question, although the answer has already been given. The reason why my my anger burns red hot against my people is because they are quick to forget me. So one of the things, going back to our uh, beginning question, is that is it wrong for us to show a kind of jealousy that God shows? Well, well, first, let's look at some of the things that God has already said about his jealousy. And so if you have your Bible, some texts that you can definitely look at. If you go back and you look at Exodus chapter 20, um, the, the Decalogue, the, the Great Ten uh, Laws are actually stated twice in the Bible. Uh, they are found in Exodus chapter 20, and then they are repeated um, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So when the people gather before God and they are given the Ten Commandments, um, and they have a covenant at Mount Sinai, uh, the Ten Commandments are given. And they are not all the law that, that that God reveals to Moses, but they really do stand as a way of, of kind of marking, of setting up exactly God's, God's plan and purpose for His people. And I want to go back and look at just kind of the beginning of this because much like if you think about the the that God creates and that there is a brokenness and then God redeems and then ultimately restores, The reason why we have to go back to the very beginning, because if you jump halfway through, if you begin to talk about redemption, what do we need to be redeemed from? Oh, the fall. Well, what did we fall from? We fell from an intentional design in place that God made us. So the same thing with the Ten Commandments. It's good for us to stop and to recognize God is not building a legal code for them to follow, for them to recognize and see His holiness, and then, in some ways, begin to respond to God for the words um, of, that Moses gives, as described in Deuteronomy chapter thirty-three, verse eleven. That the words that God, that Moses gave them on that day, were not too difficult for them. And so, there is something that can be uh, that can be redemptive in this. And it all comes back to how the the, the great the Decalogue, the, the ten sayings, the ten commandments, um, how they're how they how they uh, explained and how how it begins, verse one. God spoke these words, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, just in case you ever think it was Moses, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so that's how it begins. The, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, before we get down to do not, do not steal and do not murder and do not bear false witness and um, do not envy and uh, do not covet, all, before we get to those, God begins with, the importance of himself in the life of the people of Israel. God doesn't say don't steal because it's not nice. He says don't steal because I am the Lord your God. And I need to have the primary place in your life. You shall have no other God. And we'll explain how that connects here in a second. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity, so this is what he says in Exodus 20, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep my commandments. And then he goes on to say, You shall not take the Lord your God in vain. Meaning to utter false or, uh, or quick statements about God, that you will hold his name Interestingly enough, that as we've already seen, because his name is, in fact, jealous, that we need to recognize the primary place of God. Going back to my struggle with Andrea, even if I was married. Andrea, I don't feel like I'm in um, uh, as important spot in your life as I should be. And and I I don't know how much I'm, at that moment, I don't know how much I would be honestly thinking about where I actually stand in her life um, we, we talk like this in our in our in our relationships, and i 'm okay with the fact that that we can 't explain everything um, with with one hundred percent precision all the time, but we do in our weddings we talk about how, how I love you and I am devoted to you and and, and there 's no one else like you, and no one can satisfy me and We watch movies about you complete me and you make me want to be a better man well that 's actually a pretty good one. My wife does that too but Think about that statement from that, from that, from that movie um, where I think it was Tom Cruise that made that statement as he looks at this young woman and we look at this and we just consider this to be one of the great lines of love and devotion. You complete me. And See, one of my problems in my past where I've actually been jealous is because I looked at Andrea and I believed that she possibly could complete me. And when she wasn't giving me the attention that I felt like I deserved and I'm sure all my friends thought I deserved, I, I was actually getting increasingly frustrated because I had hoped and believed, because I would watched a crazy movie, that Andrea could complete me. And when that, when that attention that I thought I deserved and that I should be at the center, when that wasn't there, then I felt like I was being robbed of something. That's what jealousy feels like. It feels like something that you had and something that you deserved was being robbed from you. And, and by the way, that's probably what it is. And so we need to go back to this question as we deal with God's jealousy and Jim's jealousy. We have to go back and we'll begin with Jim. What, 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 is, um, what is Jim's expectation? And Jim's expectation is that Andrea, particularly as a, as, a, as, a, as a girlfriend or ultimately as a wife, needs to keep me at the center. What what is that when you have something other than God at the center? That truly is idolatry. That's why, and and I, I think it's important for us to talk about this, but I want you to think outside of the boyfriend, girlfriend, and should we date scenario, but think about it. One of the problems that I had with that was I was probably 18 years old at the time. Andrew was 16 years old at the time. And we're acting as though we've got this great covenant relationship when literally all we have is, hey, do you want to go out with me? There really is no formal binding covenant. I mean, there shouldn't be. And yet we're acting like there is. I think it's good for us to remember that. That to try to hold on to someone or to something that doesn't have a, a covenant binding them together, that it will only lead to fighting and arguing and manipulation and breakups. We had two. But God, who is a jealous God, so unlike Jim who doesn't even have the right to demand Andrea's loyalty, is now acting jealous and has to manipulate. That's not God. God actually is the one who has bound himself to Israel, has made a covenant with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who covenantally was faithful to that and brought them up out of the land of Egypt. He is now taking them to the land that he uh, covenanted with Abraham and his descendants. And God rightly has every right and expectation to this people. I mean, it wasn't the gods of Egypt that led them out. It was him, actually. Interestingly enough, there are no other gods to even vie with the primal place of God in Israel's life, or anybody's life for that matter. And so here is God in this place, not wrongly, but actually rightly. So it it, it does come back to this idea that we seldom want to talk about and probably because many of us, even those of us that, that really believe in absolute truth and we don't believe in relative truth, we don't believe in um, everything uh, really is, is, is more of a perspective and you have this idea and I have that idea. Um, what, what, what the Bible is, is arguing from is not that, hey, this is Israel's perspective or that this is God's perspective. But no, this is right. There is an agreement. There is a covenant that was made at Mount Sinai, and you are in violation of what we agreed. And so that's an important thing to remember. God has the right to be angry. Now, in twofold. One of them, and we don't don't want to forget this, He has the right covenantally to feel as though they have cheated on him, that they have violated their covenant, and therefore, when they do this, they, they, they incur upon themselves, they bring upon themselves the judgment that um, breaking the covenant entails, okay? Um, now, but on the other side of that, it's also good for us to recognize that God is not just speaking covenantally, but could also actually just speak... Um, say ontologically or that God could actually describe this in terms of his primacy in all of the universe. I am the one, Genesis 1, that spoke the world into existence. I am the one that made man in my own image. I am the one that everyone has rebelled from, even outside of like the covenant that I make at Mount Sinai or the covenant that I made with Abraham, going back to our meta-narrative, going back to the very beginning, we have been made in the image of God, that indelible mark that has been placed upon us, not knowing exactly how to define it, We, we, we have a design. And when we begin to worship something other than the only one that truly deserves our worship, we're not just fighting against a covenant agreement, but we're fighting against our design. And not only that, We're fighting against the ultimate design of the universe is that everything is either, in the whole universe, creator or created. And as we talked about last week in this class, the creator-created distinction separates absolutely everything. Now there is just one that is creator, God. And then everything else kind of fits under that category. And so when everything else fails to recognize the rightful place of it, even before it finds covenant, this, this, this incredible covenant that God offers to His creation. I mean, there is something wrong. See, the truth is, um, when Andrea broke up with me, even though I thought I was going to die, I didn't die. Um, even though I felt like I would never be complete, I really would have been complete. We all know that. I mean, I was 18 years old. And I was living under this crazy assumption that somehow I would never find love again. And by the way, um, our song together was The Search is Over by Survivor. Remember the Eye of the Tiger? The search is over. I found the one that completes me. Like at that time, I, I literally thought I was going to die. And that's just foolish. Um, and by the way, even today, um, whatever I put in place, and let's, let's do good things. Um, you've heard me talk about this. Should something happen to Andrea, oh, I would be, I would be, um, you, you guys always tell me I would be lost without her. I get what you're saying. But I really wouldn't be. Like I would, uh, I'd probably still breathe and I could probably still eat. I mean, it might take me a while to gain my appetite back. And there would be a period of grieving. But the truth is, like Andrea um, isn't and shouldn't be the center of my life. So, when, when I go back and I look at this, I, I begin to see that she, even though my covenant wife, the covenant that I actually made to Andrea is not, I will love you above all else. I will serve you above all else. And there's nothing else in the universe that stands greater than you, Andrea Johnson, at that time Slater. Now, our conversation is, like, I, I covenant myself to you. Um, I, I will put no other... Woman, no other person, not even our wonderful children, not my father and my mother. For this reason, God has a a man to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And so I agreed covenantally to forsake all others for her sake. That's the covenant relationship that God has ordained and instituted. For, for there to be this, this great place of allegiance. Why? Because he knows how broken I am. He knows how selfish I am. He knows how easy it is for me to put other things ahead of her, which hurt her, and then that hurts the children. And as I hurt her and I hurt the children, I hurt myself and I hurt society. And so God says, this is what marriage needs to be. But there is a covenant greater than marriage. And the covenant greater than marriage recognizes that God stands in the primal place. See, this Sunday, I'm going to be preaching from the book of Hosea. Um, this, I don't know if you noticed the title in the message, but it's how to cope with a terrible marriage. And, and, and what we actually see is that God looks at the, the relationship that we have, and he uses this analogy quite a bit throughout the throughout the Bible. He describes um, the, the marriage that he has with his people. And, and when that exists... Um, God finds himself, like, I guess, in that rightful place. See, the truth is that should something happen to Andrea, even though I've made a covenant to forsake her above all others, at the end of our the end of our wedding vows, say something like this. What? You know what it is, right? Think about it. Not for all eternity. Um, Andrea and I laugh about the fact, and she's probably a little more excited than I am, that when we get to heaven, there will be no marriage. Jesus said that. You know that. That when I get to heaven, and I'm now in the full presence of my designer, of my creator, of my redeemer, of my restorer. Um, It's not that Andrea won't have um, an important part in my life. I I, I still think there's going to be something very special that we will always have, that we will always remember. But we're no longer married. Why? Because we'll be like the angels in heaven, Jesus says, neither being married or given in marriage. And the reason why is, is because God truly is at the center, that my, uh, my broken state has been now fully glorified. And so now all of a sudden, instead of the kind of manipulation and exploitation that can happen where the covenant of marriage, then binds us together and protects us from the brokenness that exists in the world, that now we can experience this oneness with God and God is at the center. See, if something happens to Andrea, I go on. But if something were to ever happen to God, everything stops. And God knows this. And that is why God is, in fact, jealous. That God is, in fact, the one that can look down upon Egypt, uh, or, sorry, on the, on the Israelites after they have left Egypt, and he can hear what they're saying, right? Notice how well in the text it recites what God says and what, what was or said earlier, right? You can't flee the presence of God. And here they are, forgetting that God is the one that brought him out, they attribute it to M- Moses. And now they want these gods to go before them because they need something. And they take God, who is the a one alone to be in that rightful place, and they replace him with just a carved image. Um, th- th- God has no form. God has no, uh, uh, n- no attribute that we can then put it into stone or into wood or we can't, we can't have anything like that. Why? Because that's not the nature of who God is. And so anything that we make, think about this, anything that we make or that exists is in fact created. And God is not. And that is why God says in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, like you won't do this. Because any time that you try to take um, something that, uh, that I have made and you try to make it me, you get the order wrong. And see, Israel w- would have, and, and by the way, they continue to struggle with this issue of idolatry. They're constantly getting this wrong. And, and God's anger is, is definitely for himself. Don't get me wrong. But it's more than just for himself. His anger and his righteous indignation, his wrath is for the importance of himself, and when the people don't see that, what they're going to do is self-destruct. And God is trying to point that out to them. And how does that come out? That comes out in his jealousy. So then let me ask you this question, is it wrong to me to be jealous? Well, the Bible actually teaches that it's not wrong for us to be jealous if we're jealous of the things that matter the most. Or if we're jealous in the appropriate way, for example, if I were to find out that Andrea was spending time with someone, too much time with someone, if she was beginning to express some of her covenantal promises to someone other than me, I think I have a right to be jealous. But that jealousy needs to be rooted in the fact that what Andrea is doing is wrong. It's wrong. It's sinful. It is wrong for her to do this. It violates not just Jim Johnson, who is the most important person in the world to her, but no. Ultimately, this covenant relationship that God has ha- that God has with her, that my my indignation is not just that I have been violated, but that what Andrea is doing is fundamentally wrong to the one that made her. That's why, if you go later on in the um, in the in the Decalogue, you actually see that you shall not commit adultery. So. This law that we should not steal from one another because God would be the one that would provide. We're not going to be looking for the love of another because we're going to be satisfied with the love that God has, there I for I can be covenantally um, satisfied with Andrea, not completed in her, but I can be covenantally satisfied because I'm finding my primary needs, my, my, my fundamental needs, the most foundational needs are being met by the only one that can satisfy them and that is God. And so the, the jealousy that I believe that I'm called to exhibit is a jealousy. So, for example, looking at this is not that how, how dare Andrea do this to me, but more specifically, how can Andrea do this to someone that she is covenanted with? She is covenanted with God, and now she is going against that. And the kind of struggle and the kind of difficulty that I'm experiencing is actually one of a, a sadness for her Because she is not living up to the expectation, the standards that God has for her. Now, that kind of jealousy is is healthy. But it's also hard to do. Because in the end, um, I would probably still have this tendency to just think it was all about me. I asked a question of my wife one time. I I traveled a lot years ago. I still travel maybe a little too much still. But um, actually, the fact that you're watching this might be a sign that I'm traveling. But... I'll never forget when I asked her one time, I, I deal with this a lot. Young, young men travel on business and they make some poor choices. I'm not talking about affairs, but I'm talking about um, uh, just, uh, just the temptations that happen when we travel. And so it's actually pretty common for a lot of those who travel to begin to struggle with issues of, of pornography and lust while they're on the road. And so I I dealt with this a lot in my circumstances um, uh, dealing with other people. And I remember coming home one time from a a long trip and I was just wondering, I said to Andrea, like what would happen if I came home and I said to you, it was actually sparked from a conversation or from a a sermon that I had heard from one of my favorite preachers, David Erickson, and he was describing being on business in in, in the southern states and he had allowed himself to watch some television, uh, some, some television show, he didn't even say what it was. But he just felt terrible about this, and it began to kind of feed these these lustful ideas. And so I was hearing him confess this in front of an entire room full of people, and I thought, wow, what what boldness to be able to to be honest and vulnerable like that. And so I asked Andrea, if I were to be gone on some trip, and I were to watch something like that, and have lustful thoughts, and I just wanted to be honest with you, and share my struggle so that I can keep my sin in front of me, and uh, confess it, and um, be held accountable, what would you what would you think and what would you say because this is what we like to say is oh honey i know it's hard and I, I know it's difficult andrea what would you say to me and and she said to me i'll never forget these words she said i would be i would i would literally look at you and think oh what a poor pathetic excuse of a man <laughs> what a poor pathetic excuse of a man now my first instinct was seriously like i don't get like i don't get any slack off of this i don't get any boy, you must have some kind of self-importance, but I'll never forget it. As she began to explain it. Like, she wasn't just mad at me. She she didn't, her first thought wasn't, well, how dare you, because I'm your wife. No, her first thought was, like, how sad. Like, how sad that that you would fail to recognize um, your limitations. I, I told her, but honey, like, I'm on the road, and I'm on the road a long time. And she said, if you can't control yourself, don't leave. What Andrea was doing, and I don't even know how well she had thought through all of this, but what she was doing was she had a, like a jealous version of me that was not bound in her, but was really bound more in God. Maybe that's the jealous woman that I should be married to. Not one that's jealous for, jealous for herself, but one that truly is jealous for God. Now, By the way, Andrea is a saint because she is a follower of Jesus Christ, but she's not perfect. But what she is exhibiting there maybe is what we should describe um, or we should should see being described in ourselves. Um, It's interesting that when we look at, um, uh, I, I can close with this. So God is jealous and is rightfully jealous because he alone stands at the primary place. He alone stands at that covenantal place. And so it is just natural and it is appropriate. When we begin to be jealous, it can be very destructive. And the reason why is because in our broken state and not being in anyone's primary place, but at best secondary or tertiary places, that it can lead us to become manipulative and exploitive of those around us. But as, um, as we can actually see, and I actually, uh, interestingly enough, I don't need Andrea to give me this example. But... Um, in the Exodus through Exodus 32 material, do you see how it ends? So Moses begs God not to do anything, and God says, okay, I won't do anything. Um, and I want you to take a look at verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets, the testimony that he had. Verse 16, the tablets were the work of God, the writing with the hand of God engraved on tablets. When Joshua heard the noise, so he was kind of with Moses halfway up the mountain. When Joshua uh, heard the noise of the people, they shouted, he said, There's the noise of war in the camp, and, which is an interesting statement because there was. But it really wasn't war. It was a festival to other gods, which sounds like war in the, eye, in the, in the, in the mind and in the heart of God. But he said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound uh, or the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw down the tablets out of his hand at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that had been made and burned it with fire to the ground and ground it into powder and scattered it. And then Moses said to Aaron, what is this? Uh, What did this people do to you to have you brought such great sin upon them? Aaron then gives this really terrible excuse. And then when Moses had seen that the people had broken loose, verse, 20, verse 26, Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi, if you ever wonder, like, where, where why, why are um, the, the Levites the priests? This is the story that develops this. The Levites gather around them, and they said to them, Thus said the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on each side, or on, uh, put your sword on your side, each of you, And go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you, at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Wow. What the Levites exhibited is what I saw in my wife, which was a jealousy that existed not for her and for the Levites not for them, but actually for God. See, that kind of jealousy is good. Now, I still think we need to be careful because much like anger, when it burns up inside of us um, being broken people and not being already fully glorified, um, it, can, it can go to some pretty destructive and terrible places. But the kind of jealousy that we see first begins with God, and even in the midst of his jealousy, notice how in this text, he relents. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. He is steadfast. His hesed. And then we see the Levites standing up and, and having that kind, of, that kind of jealousy that, um, that I, I cannot believe that people are treating God this way. You know, it's interesting. I hear a lot of offense uh, being talked about. Oh, I'm so offended that he said that. Oh, I'm so offended that they are or are not standing for the national anthem. I can't believe that so-and-so said I'm just so offended. And actually what we see, and I don't hear a lot about this, is there is a lot of offense that happens that doesn't seem to get any kind of response from you and I. And that is when God is mistreated or is... Um, is spoken against, is blasphemed, when God is not properly worshiped. You and I seem to walk through that like it's no big deal. Now listen, be very careful strapping a sword to your side and going from gate to gate and killing brothers and sons and neighbors and anyone who opposes. That's that's not the same context that we have been given. But if there's one thing that we can learn from this Exodus 32 text, is not only that God is jealous and that God will in fact um, bring about the, uh, the righteous judgment upon those, but that it is appropriate for us to kind of recognize where we stand in our relationship with God and then to passionately, cautiously, humbly have the same kind of uh, jealousy that God has. Jealousy for ourselves is a dangerous and even a sinful thing. But jealousy of God and who He is and what He has done, the primary place. Think through some of your relationships. Like, are you jealous for God with your spouse? Not for you, for God. For your children. Are you jealous for God's sake for your children? Are you jealous for God's sake with your extended family? Are you jealous for God's sake for your neighbor? Are you jealous for God's sake at all that God does not receive? He's being robbed. And does that bother you at all? There's a lot of talk that we have right now of social injustice. But let's be honest. The greatest injustice that continues to go on is not that somehow you and I, as important as we are, are being mistreated, but that God, the one who is worthy of all honor and praise, is not being treated the way he deserves. Hope that this has been um, a challenge and a blessing to you. I pray that you find your rightful place in God's purposes, that you see his image, in you and in those around you, and that you find that as humans made in the image of God, being remade in the image of Christ, that you find your rightful place in God's plan, but the rightful place of those of us made, created in God's image. Never supersede, never rise above the image of God himself. Love you guys, and we will see you most likely Wednesday night, if not before.